0: This morning, we are going to begin the book of Galatians, and we're also going to begin our first mini-series, if you will, working through the first two chapters of Galatians. And so, just to, to get us up to speed, Galatians is a New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul. In fact, it may be the earliest document in the New Testament. It's very early. If you want to put it in the narrative of the book of Acts, Paul gets radically saved while he's persecuting the Christian church. In that radical salvation moment where he encounters Jesus Christ, Jesus commissions him to carry the message of the gospel out to the nations. And so he serves for a while in a church in Antioch, just north of Israel, And then one day he's sitting with some other pastors and elders. He's been a teacher and a pastor of this church for a while. And the Holy Spirit speaks to the group and says, set apart to me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I have called them to. And they go on what we sometimes refer to as the first missionary journey, where they go up north from Antioch into the area uh, to the northeast of the Mediterranean. That includes, in fact, it almost entirely is made up of the area referred to as Galatia. So if you want to read about the churches that Paul plants that he's writing to here, pick up in Acts chapter 13 and read all the way through chapter 14. That's the churches we're talking about. But if you keep reading in the book of Acts, you'll see that as he returns home to Antioch and shares with his church what God has done in planting these congregations of believers all throughout the area of Galatia, there's also a controversy. A second voice comes in. Christians from Jerusalem come in and they come to these Gentile, non-Jewish converts and they say, all right, now that you've received Jesus, you must be circumcised and obey the law of Moses, okay? Now, if you keep reading, eventually this boils into the first council of the Christian church that takes place in Jerusalem as they decide this issue of how Gentiles fit into God's plan and the church that Jesus is building, This letter predates that, though, and this letter is written to the churches in Galatia who are not just uh, seeing these other voices come in, but believing them. In fact, more than maybe any other New Testament letter, Paul's letter to the church in Galatia is impassioned and intense. He calls them foolish. He asks who has bewitched them. He warns them that they're headed in the way of a curse, in the way of death. Okay. This is not some sort of internal minor scuffle about doctrinal differences. This is not some sort of armchair theologian back, of, back and forth that deals with the mysteries of God. To Paul, this is life and death. And what I love about the book of Galatians is because it is a polemic, because it is fighting against the opposition. It sharpens the contours of both our understanding of the gospel, and as it does so, it sharpens the contours of our appreciation for the gospel. And so what we're going to look at for the next four weeks is a series that we've entitled Gospel Definition, like High Definition remember how when we made that transition to high definition in television and suddenly you could see the post-it notes on the cubicle wall behind the characters and read the messages on them in fact at the time hollywood was scrambling because you know they had used lorem ipsum for that stuff made up words and now they knew people were watching and they had to clean up their game okay in the same way what paul does in these first two chapters is he brings definition to the gospel in a way that clarifies everything And that's the amazing thing about the gospel. The better you understand it, it's not just the clearer it is to you, but the more it clarifies your own life, the more it defines you, okay? And so that's what we're going to see in the weeks to come. I want to begin here uh, at the beginning of the book of Galatians with the first nine verses, which we would just call an introduction. Now, in one sense, as we read this, if you're familiar with the other New Testament letters that Paul writes familiar territory. The structure of it is very similar to the other letters. Uh, the content is very similar. In fact, sometimes we can just brush through the opening verses of a, of a New Testament epistle and go, all right, let's get to the meat. But Paul never wastes words. And so I want you to pay attention to exactly what he says. And if you're familiar with the, the possibilities, if you're a Christian this morning, a reader of the New Testament, I want you to think about all the things he could have said and, and just start to think about why, why these things. Recognize that where he's going, which we'll also hit a little bit this morning, determines where he starts and how he gets there. Okay. So read with me this morning, Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and the brothers who were with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God, our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished contrary to the one you received let him be accursed let's pray father we know that this word written here to a church in a land most of us have never visited in a time most of us uh you know thousands of years before any of us were born we know that this is not just your words to the church in Galatia but it is your words to us this morning. We pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand your word by the Holy Spirit that you have given us. We pray that you would instruct our hearts and define the gospel. Even when it comes to drawing battle lines, Lord, let those battle lines help us to understand the significance of what you've done in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to look again at the language of verses 6 through 9. I want you to hear again the the passion and the intensity and the concern. I want you to recognize the depths of these words. The first one, Paul says he's astonished. He's shocked. He's double-taking. He didn't see this coming. He's not like, oh, that makes sense, right? He is astonished. Second, that they are so quickly... One of the things that shocks him about the Galatian church is that it's like, really, now? And is it so quickly because they've just recently become Christians? Is it so quickly because Paul just left them a few weeks ago? Or is it so quickly because the other side has convinced them so quickly? Either way, he says, so quickly deserting him who called you. Now, as astonished as Paul is by this, I promise you, the Galatians are astonished by these words. Okay, As they read this letter as would have been done aloud to the church, there are people going, deserting Jesus? What? That wasn't on the table. None of them are going, you know what, forget Christianity, I'm going back. He uses very strong terms here. And then notice what he says here. He says, that you are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. He uses two different words there for different. He says a different gospel, not that there is a different one, literally. He uses terms that are almost synonymous, but why doesn't he use the same term twice? Most likely because he wants to say that it's a different gospel, but there is no such thing as a different gospel. In other words, as it's translated here in the ESV, not that there is another gospel. There's there's only one. But again, the problem that is facing the Galatian church here is not the gospel of Zeus. It's not some other alternative religion. It is a modification. It is an addition. In fact, what the teachers are telling the church in Galatia is not that they need to go back and start again. They're fine with Jesus. They just want them to continue in a particular direction. Start with Jesus and then add another thing. But Paul says, no, 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 this is not addition. This is subtraction. This is erasure. You cannot add and get more than you started with. Here's what I want to suggest to you this morning. When we add things to the gospel message... It's like making a mixture. And I think sometimes we think of that in terms of dilution, right? So you've got something that's too strong, you add a little water, it's watered down. Paul's concern here is not about a watered down gospel. It's about a denial of the gospel out of hand. In other words, what we're talking about here is a chemical reaction, not dilution. The threat here is that by adding this to the gospel, you are actually subtracting. From the gospel and therefore denying it. Okay? Now, before we get into that issue, the intensity here, the different gospel, we have to start with what is the gospel? Paul says here it's the gospel that they received from him. Okay, look at what he says in verse. Eight, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you. So it's the message they already received. But notice in that, Paul doesn't root the truth of that gospel or the authority of that gospel in his own authority. He says, even if we preach to you a different gospel, let us be accursed. He doesn't say, I can't believe you don't trust me. He doesn't say, I can't believe you don't believe me. I can't believe after everything I've done from you, you would turn from me. He sees the gospel as self-validating, self-vindicating. Okay? What his concern is here is that that they have neglected the message of the gospel in such a way that they don't realize the incompatibility of what they're doing now. Now, what is this gospel? What's striking to me about this introduction in those first 4 verses is that Paul lays out what makes the gospel gospel, what makes the good news good, in such a clear and persistent way. Like I said, you may have read it this morning and it reads just like the introduction to Ephesians or to Colossians or 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, but he's very intentional What is it that makes the good news good? What are we talking about when we say gospel? I want you to notice this first and foremost, that it's the gospel because it is God's work from beginning to end. Look with me at verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, grace and peace are, are just greetings in the ancient world. But Paul here imbues them with content. Grace is a key word in the book of Galatians. We'll see that a little bit later this morning. Peace uh, is, is also related to the gospel, but I want you to notice where he roots them here. He doesn't just say grace and peace like we would say, hi, hello. He says grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where the beginning of the gospel is. It's in the character of God. Grace and peace in this sense are both acts of God, gifts of God, if you will. In fact, the word for grace in the New Testament charis is also the word for gift, okay? It's just the difference between adjective and noun. It's the difference between context, okay? So it begins here in the character of God and then it extends into God's will, okay? So notice here in verse four, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God our our Father. Okay. Second, the will. So it begins with the character of God. There is peace for us. There is grace for us because God is gracious. Because his orientation is towards peace. But second, that's expressed in God's plans. The good news of the gospel is expressed in God's desire, God's will. You see, at the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, that's where we get the explanation of what's wrong with everything. What's gone wrong with life? Why are things so hard, so painful, so difficult? Why is death so present? Why is there evil in the world? Why is there hatred? Why is there murder? Why can I not do the things that I want to do, as Paul says? Why do I do the things that I don't want to do? Why didn't I have a good father or good mother? Why didn't I experience a peaceful upbringing? All of these questions, it begins in a problem that goes wrong in Genesis, which ultimately has to do with our own rebellion our choice to define for ourselves what is right and wrong, our choice to turn away from God and turn into ourselves and follow our own ways and own means. But even in the garden, we get a little picture, a little parable of how God works. When Adam chooses to eat of the tree, along with his wife Eve, and they suddenly realize what they've done, In their journey in life, as they suddenly realize, oh shoot, we're off course, we're lost. What happens next? Who initiates setting things right? Does Adam go, hey God, can you hear me? We really messed up here. No, in fact, God comes looking for them and their first impulse is, we got to hide. And do they call out from the hiding, say, I don't know what to do about this, God, can you please help? No, God says, Adam, where are you? And as God interrogates Adam and Eve about what happened, Adam doesn't go, All right, I know we messed up. Here's a solution. Instead, God presents a solution. He says, Here's what I'm going to do about it. One of the things that makes the good news good is that it's rooted not just in the character of God, but it's his plan. From the beginning of ages, executed over the millennia, moving to this point, as it will say later in Galatians, at the fullness of time, God sent his son. The fullness of time. What does that mean? Exactly when God intended. When his plans had finally come to their full moment. When he reached the crescendo of his symphony. It's God's will and not man's that defines the gospel. Look third. It says here, Grace to you in peace from God our Father, verse 3, and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Who settles the problem there? Do we fix it? Sin, I told you, is the issue. Do we give God something for our sins? Do we set things right? Are we the ones who fix the problem? Because it could be that way, right? God could lay out the plan and go, All right, look, I know you're off the map, I'm going to guide you home. Let me walk you through it. And we'd still have to walk the steps. Is that what happened? No, God gave himself in Jesus Christ for our sins. The action of redemption that makes the good news good. The proclamation. In fact, this is part of what makes it not just good news, but news at all. As is often said, the gospel is not good advice. It's not here is the way home. Just complete this document, follow these steps. Here is the way to go. Take a left at the tree and take a right. Just live this way and everything will be okay. Instead, it's Jesus died for you. That's an act of God. In fact, we'll return to that in just a second, but I want to keep following this thread of God's action because it doesn't stop there. Not only did Jesus give Himself for our sins, but notice at the tail end of verse one, there, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. So Jesus dies for us, but that's not the only—that's not the end of the story. God raises Him to life. Again, simple question: Is that something we do? No, it's something God did. And not only that, but let me point out to you that one of the unsolvable problems of human life is death. Paul refers to it in 1 Corinthians as our last enemy. But Jesus Christ was raised back to life by God. When we talk about newness of life in Christ... Is that newness that we bring? Is that life that we cultivate? Do we just follow in Jesus' example? No, we have been instilled with the divine resurrection life of what God has done. Okay, now I think sometimes that's where a lot of us stop. What makes the good news uh, good is that God in his character is gracious and loving, that he came up with a plan to save humanity, that he delivered us By Jesus dying in our place and raised him back to life, and now it's on our shoulders. But that's not where the emphasis stops. Look again at verse one Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. An apostle is just a word that means appointed messenger. What is Paul saying here? Why does he carry the gospel? Why is he proclaiming it? Is it because Paul is such a great guy? Is it because he discovered this like a scientist would, who's like, oh my gosh, germs are real. Please wash your hands. No. God reaches down, sets a finger on not just the message, but the messenger. He commissions. He calls. Why have the Galatians heard about Jesus? Because they were so smart they went looking? Because they were digging through libraries of truth and finally discovered the meaning of life. No, because God graciously appointed a messenger and sent him that way. And you go, okay, fine, you're right. It doesn't end back there, but there it ends. But it doesn't. Look at verse six. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. I have no problem as Christians recognizing that the way that salvation comes is that we call upon the name of the Lord. It's true. But we call in response to a call. That's what Paul says here. That's why he's so astonished. It's as if God in Jesus Christ through the message of the gospel by the mouth of Paul has extended an invitation. Do you see God runs from beginning, middle, and end through all of this. That's what makes the good news good. Second. A second part of this that Paul draws out specifically goes back again to verse 4. Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. Gave himself for our sins. That's substitution. Jesus didn't die for his sins, but for yours. You didn't die for your sins. Jesus died in your place. Jesus took, in the language of Isaiah, your sins upon his shoulders and carried them to the cross, and there they were crucified along with him. Substitution is what makes the good news good, because the question is not, again, what must I do? It's what has God done? In fact, look at later in that, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us. Think of that word deliver. I don't know about you, but when I think of that word now, I think of Amazon, right? But we're not talking about delivering of a package. We're talking about deliverance. So let me change the word there and help you all who rescued us from the coming age. The gospel is a rescue mission. A proclamation of what God has done to save us, right? That's one of the primary words we use to express what God has done. In that case, again, God is acting, of course. But there's lots of other ways that God acts, and rightly. God acts in creating. God acts in judging. God acts in all sorts of things, but this action is defined as an act of rescue. That's what makes the good news good. Because again, good advice would say, here is something that you need to do to recalibrate, to restore, to rebuild, to make restitution. But the good news says this is what God has done to rescue you. Now, just because I want to lodge it in your brain, there's nothing really unique or novel about that way of talking about the gospel than the other ways that it's iterated throughout the New Testament. But the ending here is unique to Galatians. Not that it's not brought up anywhere else, but in the introductions, look at what he says. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from what? I mean, we could put a lot of things in that blank. Who deliver us from death. Who deliver us from sin who deliver us from the judgment of God. There's so many things that he can put here, and the one he chooses is the present evil age. As we will see in Galatians, that is significant. But again, think of it in terms of a rescue mission. Now, sometimes this word age is translated world, and the reason why age is better is because there's a chronological aspect to the way that Jewish people think about life the age that is, and the age to come. And Paul strangely says, actually, the age to come is here, (laughs) but so is the age that is. They're overlapping right now, and those in Jesus Christ are people from the future, effectively. Eternal life begins now, not then, okay? But in our case, the present evil world, I think, is a better description, and all I want to show you here is that in this idea, what Paul is going to put under here is a whole lot of content. The present evil world includes being delivered from the kingdom of darkness, which is evil because it's ruled by the evil one. The present evil world is the world as it's defined by sin around us and in us. The present evil world is a world that has created its own standards of beauty and glory and truth it's systemic. It, remember when Paul says in Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to the image of this world? Same word, image of this age. There's this force pressuring us to believe a certain way, to think a certain way, to live a certain way, to value a certain way. But here, the gospel delivers us from all those things. Okay. This is the gospel that Paul preached. This is the good news and why it's good. Let me summarize it for you. Here's what saves. Here's what restores. Here's what brings life instead of death. Here's what sets us right with God and with one another. It begins in the character of God. As expressed in his plans and wills carried out by his action in Jesus Christ, both dying in our place as a substitution and raising him from the dead, as appointing messengers to go out and proclaim this message and then through that message calling us to respond. That's the gospel. How are things made right? How can we know God? How can we uh, set things right? How can we experience things Peace. Shalom. And then there's one other element. It's probably a little bit obvious, but I want to highlight it because we'll come back to it. It's that word grace. Like I said, Paul uses that word throughout Galatians. It's a key word. Here it summarizes what makes the good news good news it's that it's news of grace, it's that it's a gift, it's that it's freely given apart from worth. In other words, what we just read in this introduction that Paul had preached to the uh, churches across Galatia is simply this. God is offering you salvation freely. There are no prerequisites. He's not just offering it to these people and not those people. Grace defines the gospel. Now, go back again to verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. As I said uh, earlier, Paul's concern here is not that they're turning unto a different religion, like going back to worshiping Zeus or Dionysus or, or some of the other gods, Uh, or that they are turning to a, a different means and way of salvation in an explicit way. In other words, none of the people he's writing to have verbally renounced their belief in Jesus Christ. Instead, what has happened, as I mentioned in the introduction, is these men have come in and said, all right, now that you are part of God's family, All of you adult men need to be circumcised and all of you need to keep the law of Moses. That is so striking because apart from any other way that we can uh, change the gospel, this one is drawing from the same scriptures that proclaim the gospel. This one has, if you will, biblical authority and precedent and these types of things. And Paul still says heresy. Heresy he says, let them be accursed. The word there means to be damned. Now, just so you know, Paul is relatively even-handed. For one, just in case you thought he just got emotionally out of hand and said something he shouldn't, he takes the time to say it again. Did you notice that? He says, just in case you didn't hear me the first time, right? He recognizes people hearing this the first time would be shocked, And he goes, I don't want you to think that I did that just to shock you. I don't want you to think that you misunderstood me. As I said before, let me say it again. If anyone preaches you another gospel, let them be accursed. But he's also very balanced. So he uses the same word in the book of Romans and this is what he says. He says, for my brethren, the Jews, God's people in the Old Testament, I wish I myself could be accursed. Same word. I wish I myself could be damned so that they could be saved. The language that's drawn from here is not from some sort of hatred of Paul, but from how high stakes the issue is. It is life and death. Jesus speaks high stakes like this in one occasion. He says, if anyone stumbles, the little child, and leads them away from me, it would be better if a millstone, a hundreds and hundreds pound weight, was hung around their neck and they were cast into the sea. It's intense because it's high stakes. But again, the issue in the eyes of the Galatians, as well as in the eyes of what Paul calls the troublers here, those who are carrying this message, is not one of forsaking Jesus. It's one of addition. It's one of, all right, now that you have Jesus, what comes next? But Paul doesn't see it that way. Look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 21. He says in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness was through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He says, The way that you are putting yourself under the law and demanding the keeping of it, it nullifies God's grace. What does he mean? He means you don't need Jesus if the law is sufficient. Right? You nullify, in fact, further than that, Christ died for no purpose. He puts it even stronger in chapter 5. Look at what he says in verse 3. Chapter 5, verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Listen to this. You are severed from Christ. You would who, who would be justified from the law, you have fallen away from grace. You cannot add and still leave the gospel intact. He sees this not as jesus and moses but jesus or moses in fact and we'll see this as we go about one of the defining features of the book of galatians is rhetorical antithesis what i mean is that paul constantly presents two alternatives and it's not like dark and light or day and night where they're just two different things they're antithesis choose one can't have both So he says, new creation or the world. He says, from God or from man. He says, slavery or freedom. He says, maturity or immaturity. He says, spirit or flesh. You'll see it over and over again. But what is he really talking about? Here's what it is that to add prerequisites or conditions to the gospel changes the message. It cannot be a gift and not a gift. It cannot be God's work and our work instead. It cannot be undeserved and earned. Now, sometimes when we read Galatians, we go, yeah, but none of us were thinking about getting circumcised. And we think, what, what, what is this application for us today? But actually, Paul is thinking broader here. How do we know when we're in danger of following in these footsteps and believing that we are just building upon our Christianity, but we are actually tearing it down? There's three ways that we can see in the letter of Galatians that I want to draw your attention to. The first has to do with how we divide. Look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now that sounds like middle school lunchroom politics, doesn't it? Like he chose to sit at the cool kids' table instead of his usual friends because he was intimidated by them. But listen to how Paul responds in verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Now he's not telling this story as an aside. It's part of the point of his whole message in Galatians. He calls Peter out here for not expressing the gospel, in fact denying it, not walking in light of it because of the way he divides people. Part of the present evil age is the way that we divide people into groups. And guess what? We never just divide them into equal teams, do we? We never just divide them for the sake of order. We divide them for the sake of hierarchy. We divide them for the sake of status. Why does he not sit with the Gentiles? Because the Gentiles aren't one of us. It's othering. Us and them. And we can graph that into the gospel. We can say, all right, yes, the gospel is here, but these are my people, and those are your people. I care about our group, and I don't care about this group. Separation is part of the problem in Galatians. But like I said, underlying that is not just division, but status. in one of the most striking verses in all of Galatians, look at what Paul says in Galatians 3:25. Uh, actually, three, uh, 20, yeah, 25 is fine. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, you might be going, he's just neglecting the women there. Why doesn't he say sons and daughters God? Actually, many times in the New Testament, Paul uses a word that just means uh, the people. Brother and sister would be a good translation. Here he doesn't. He uses the word that specifically is masculine. Now, that's striking because in a second, he's going to talk about men and women. But here's the point. In Paul's world, the adult sons are the inheritors. And that's what he's talking about in the context of this story. He's talking about the status as inheritors. And he says, In Christ Jesus, that's all of you. Look at how he continues. He says, For as many as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female. Those three categories are striking. One, because it's the primary Jewish distinction of status. We are the people of God, and you are just the nations. The second, because it's the primary Roman world status. We are free, and you are slaves. And the third is a creation difference. Going all the way back to the first chapter of the Bible, male and female, he created them in the image of God. And here he says, but if you're thinking in terms of status, you don't understand the gospel. And so here's how this plays out. We go, yes, I was saved by grace, but I'm still better than those people. We hold up our view of politics. We hold up our wealth and status. We hold up our nationality. We hold up our race. If we make anything a defining trait of who we are against others, when he says here there's neither Jew nor Gentile, he doesn't mean there's no distinction He means there's no benefit in one or the other. He means that you cannot hold pride over others as being one of us as opposed to one of them. The gospel is a gift apart from worth. And the systems of worth in the world as we know it are incompatible with that. Either God shows no partiality, and saves all of us apart from our worth? Or those models of worth matter and distinguish and separate and define us? And the last thing where we can see this in our own lives is what we demand of others. Remember what the troublers are saying in Galatians? You must be circumcised and keep the law. This is where we start to add to the gospel and destroy it. When we heap other conditions on other people. And no surprise, they're related to the other two. Effectively, what we say is, you must be like us. To be a real success in God's eyes, you have to become like we are. You have to do these things. You have to follow these practices. You have to follow in our footsteps. You have to choose our choices. Now, I want to be really clear here. The gospel comes with its own demands. Sometimes when we say that grace means unconditional, what we try and imply is that God expects nothing of us in return. That is not the New Testament gospel. God expects everything in return. But what determines those demands? Jesus Christ himself. The gospel itself. Sometimes we read that verse in Galatians, no male and female, no slave and free, and then we read the other books in the New Testament and we feel like Paul forgot that. Right? So, Paul, then why do you tell slaves to obey their masters? Paul has no problem with order. But he recognizes that the gospel relativizes status. This is what he says in Colossians. He says, slaves, don't be worried about your condition as slaves because you're free in the Lord. And he says, masters, don't ever forget that you are the slaves of Christ. He relativizes, but he also reverses. He says no male and female here, and yet he still recognizes in Ephesians, husbands are the head of the household and wives are the body. He recognizes an order and an orientation. But here's what he does to the status of men. He says, husbands, lay your life down as Christ does for the church. When we think of status, we think of privilege. But in Jesus Christ, privilege is laid down for the sake of the other. Jesus is the master of all, the king of kings and lord of lords. But Philippians says he became a servant. Why was Paul not walking in step with the gospel? Because he was dividing what God had united. Because he was calling unclean what God had made clean. All of that stuff stems from the radical gift of Jesus Christ. See, here's here's what I'd like to suggest to you this morning. When we believe the gospel, we don't just leave our sin behind we leave our self-imposed impression of righteousness. You cannot come to Jesus and go, yes, in this area I need your help, and then continue to live as if in this area you're all good. You cannot continue to divide and say, these are my people. You cannot continue to uh, keep demands on people so that they are worthy of your attention, let alone worthy of God's. And you cannot continue to maintain a significance or a status condition as being what defines you as a good person or a successful person or a worthy person. That's why Paul is concerned. The present evil age defines reality in a way that says, this is what goodness looks like. This is what success looks like. These are the real people. And that leads to strife, ambition, division, all those things Paul will return to, and they're incompatible with the gospel. I worry sometimes that Paul's shock in the Galatians church might be present in our day, might be present in our life. I think sometimes we experience the gospel in such a powerful way and we are so acquainted with the freeness of that gift and we find so much relief and joy in it. And then years go by. And pretty soon we feel like we've got this Christianity thing under our belt and our life is a lot better than it used to be. And we see someone who's new to Christ or hasn't become a Christian yet and we go, man, what a mess. I don't even know why we let them in our church. It's forsaking the gospel. I think sometimes we start to heap upon the gospel of Christ, the isms of our world. And even though we say, like the Jews here do, we can make a biblical case for this, they become a defining divider of worth. And so we say, you need to be a Christian and a Republican. You need to be a Christian and a progressive. You need to be a Christian and an intellectual. You need to be a Christian and fully healthy. You need to be a Christian and, and, and. And as soon as we do that, we lose the foundation our lives are built upon, which was, apart from all those things, Christ died for you. This is what I mean when I say gospel definition the clearer we see that God has saved us by his work, the clearer we see that God offers salvation as a gift. The clearer we see that what salvation means is as it says at the end of the introduction there, verse five, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. Who gets the credit for the story of humanity? Who gets the glory? What do you boast in? What do you take pride in? Either it's God or it's something else. But if it's not God, it's not the gospel. My prayer is that we would heed this warning this morning. But here's why, and this is where Paul is going. Because heeding this warning leads to freedom, not to slavery. It's because heeding this war- warning sets us free from the oppression and destruction and division that these other systems cause. That the gospel didn't just do what you can't do, it does all there is to do. It is sufficient to make you a loving, wholesome person. It is sufficient to cultivate a world of God's shalom where there is peace. It is sufficient the fixing of all that's wrong in the world. And you cannot add to it without denying that sufficiency and therefore denying it itself. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your plan was more comprehensive than we usually think it is. Oftentimes, we come to God with felt needs, and we say, this is the problem. We're like the man who gets lowered down from the ceiling by his friends, paralyzed and unable to walk. And Jesus looks at me and says, son, your sins are forgiven. It's like, well, how about my legs? Can you do something about that? But Jesus, you're always working deeper, and here you, just didn't, you didn't just deliver us from our fears or our concerns, or even our sins, Lord, you delivered us from all there is to the present evil age. I pray, Lord, that we would be shook to the core by the radicalness of your grace, by the reorientation of who Christ is and what he has done that every dividing wall has been broken down, that every distinction has been made irrelevant, that every mountain has been brought low and every valley raised up, and that that is good. Let us heed the warning of Paul this morning, and Father, help us to do so. Help us to see with clarity. Bring about conviction in our life. Help us to press into the gospel and not move beyond it. Pray this in your name. Amen.